I'm so thankful uh, to uh, be a member and an elder here, and it is also just a blessing to preach God's word to you again today as we consider the book of Jonah. Um, I will begin the study today, and in a few weeks it will be continued and completed by men with better beards or mustaches than me. <laughs> but on that note, let's continue in our worship. Let's approach the one who is worthy and ask of him. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we come into this place this morning in need of you. We give thanks that you know our hearts and you know our needs and you invite us to make requests as a good father. We give thanks for our life this morning. We recognize that this is a gift from you. God, may you help us to value the worth of life as you do. Even as we consider moments on a calendar like the Sanctity of Life week, God, give us grace as a body, a community, and a nation in this light, God. Please grant us to help in our partnerships with First Care and others to work to lift up those at a difficult road. God, please use this place and use us to help in tangible ways for those who are seeking um, to honor life. God, we thank you for our own church body this morning. We give you thanks for our families. God, please intercede, even this morning, in the teaching of your word to our children in the adjacent room right now. May they see you for who you are. You are a gracious and merciful God. May they seek salvation through you at a young age. God, please, in this body, raise up a generation who loves your word and seeks your presence. God, we give thanks for those this morning in Sunday school and in this hour who sacrificially give of their time to care for and share the gospel with our children. Bless them. Now, God, as we turn our attention to your word together, Help us know that it's meant for our souls. Ready us to receive it. Surprise us with the truth unexpected. Correct us in areas where we stray. Encourage us by your word in places where we are burdened. Mature us, God, in places where we need to grow up. Cause our hearts to not only understand your truth, but God, may we embrace it. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. June 17, 1994, was supposed to be a big sports night. Viewers around the nation settled in front of their TV screens to watch the New York Knicks and the Houston Rockets in Game 5 of the NBA Finals. But instead, another sports figure dominated the screens that night in an unforgettable way 29 years ago. O.J. Simpson hopped into a white Ford Bronco, rode down a Los Angeles interstate, and sparked one of the most watched TV events in history. That was the day Simpson was charged with two counts of murder. He was supposed to have turned himself in and faced charges, but he didn't. He was declared a fugitive, and a warrant was put out for his arrest, and some 95 million people watched the chase that night. They watched in ways that we don't, we don't watch TV events now. 
People stood in large groups in front of televisions, in their homes, bars, restaurants, and other public places and just gawked at the spectacle. Simpson ultimately made his way home to his mansion in L.A. and and negotiations with police started. And then before 9 p.m., Simpson surrendered. Clutching a family photo, he was arrested and jailed. So reports Doug Christ of CNN in a retrospective of the many events to us that are etched in our memory of that night. You probably remember where you were. You see, we, we vividly, we, we're captivated by the idea of the chase, aren't we? It's something that intrigues us. We can't help but want to watch it. This isn't just true of, you know, the, whether or not the bad guy gets caught, right? Or, or the, the fugitive. We also love the chase of the awkward, quiet guy pursuing the beautiful girl. And we wonder, you know, will he win her heart? Will he woo her and marry her? And we gladly throw our money to watch movies that fill that theme. Think Mr. Darcy and um, uh, Pride and Prejudice. And we also glue our, idea, our, our eyes to other pursuits, right? Think Olympic events. We, we wonder with bated breath, will that swimmer, will, will that runner, will that skier, will they fulfill the lifelong pursuit in that one moment in time and grasp glory? That pursuit, will they get it? We love the excitement. We love the risk and Honestly, we love the uncertainty of the pursuit, the chase. Well, in Jonah this morning, we have a pursuit story to consider that is equally as exciting as any we could watch or read. But in this story, we see the very God of the universe as the one doing the pursuing. He is the one who chases. You see, in this story, Jonah... In Jonah, we may find a lot of things that that we can relate to, frankly. But even more importantly, I pray we see the heart and passion of God as he reveals himself and as he pursues his plans and his people. So if you would, just turn in your copy of God's word to Jonah 1. In the minor prophets near the back of the Old Testament, minor just simply means that they're, they're shorter books of the Bible. Um, and they came in the time of the prophets in the life of Israel and Judah. So as you turn there, I just want to give you a brief context of where we're headed in this hour. Uh, Jonah is a famous book. I'm sure most of us know the story, or at least the first half of the story. Um, In fact, I, I know I had three or four kids' books on my kids' shelf that I looked at this week that all told a version of the story of Jonah, and most of it centers on what? Thank you. Most people said fish. It's a fish. But the whale, the fish, the giant fish. Kids love the supernatural. It's it's interesting to see giant fish. And there's a lot of supernatural in this book, so much so that there are some who claim that this is really a parable. That this this shouldn't maybe be in in the uh, Minor Prophets that this is just some lesson for us to learn with this outlandish story. But I I don't think that we should accept that for a couple reasons. This doesn't align with Scripture because we have historical narratives of throughout the Bible where God does the supernatural. He's sovereign over it. 
And secondly, we have a historical prophet named Jonah. If you look at 2 Kings 14, we see that Jonah was a prophet of Israel who lived during the reign of Jeroboam II. And, and he would likely have been known by some of the other prophets in that, that era. He came like right behind the time of Elijah and Elisha. And he was a contemporary of Amos. Amos, who we'll think about a little bit in this hour, Amos actually prophesied of the coming judgment of Israel, of whom Jonah was a pro- also a prophet, detailing that they would be handed over to their enemies. Something that Jonah would have likely been aware of. Jonah prophesied successfully, if you will. Jonah brought blessing to the nation of Israel. Even though Jeroboam was wicked, Jonah prophesied that God would restore the ancient boundaries of Israel. He would expand their territory. And it happened. So this this is the account, this account of who Jonah is, is that he is a true and useful and successful prophet. He's not a false prophet. But this book of the Bible, it comes after that. This comes in a period of time after he had been in Israel and the territory had been expanded. And and frankly, this is more raw and unflattering of who Jonah is. Al Martin says it's this is more of a snapshot that you can think of like in the portrait photos everybody looks good in a portrait photo right you go into the studio they're going to make you look real nice especially with digital imagery now this isn't that this is back in the day when you snapped the picture and you found out three weeks later how it looked Um, we'll explain that later to the younger people but um, this is an ugly raw snapshot and that's what we have so if you would please read with me from Jonah 1 Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship in the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship and had laid down and fallen fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us whose accounts this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you've done? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temptuous. 
he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode harder to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. There's a lot happening in this passage, but in the time that we have remaining this morning, I hope that we learn one simple truth that we see throughout this chapter of Jonah. God will pursue and accomplish his gracious will as expressed in his clear word. God will pursue and accomplish his gracious will as expressed in his clear word. He will chase. He will have his way in our lives in this church, and across all of heaven and all of earth. Our obstinance, unbelief, disobedience, it will not stand in his way. And I believe that this should be our hope this morning. This should be our encouragement this morning. And the truth by which we examine our own hearts. And I want to do that simply in just three questions. Number one, what caused this chase? Number two, what does Jonah do? And then finally, what does God do? So let's begin by considering what caused this chase? Why are our eyes glued to the screen of Jonah chapter 1? Well, the answer is simple. God spoke to Jonah. Verse 1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah saying, Arise, get up. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. See, God revealed a direct message to Jonah. This was not as if he was reading the book of Psalms, like we were blessed to read Psalm 139, or he was reviewing the account of the Exodus. No, the, Jonah was a prophet. And, and unlike others in the Old Testament at that time who, who waited to hear from God's chosen men or women, a word from the Lord. He had direct access. Sinclair Ferguson says that he enjoyed New Testament privileges, that the actual very word of God came upon him, and he had direct revelation. He was given the word of God for the people to understand and then to obey, to ultimately learn from the character of God and to love and worship him. You see, this is no casual encounter of him just reading what sometimes we do. No, this is directly from God. And I love how Sinclair Ferguson also describes this word in this just very first verse of Jonah. He says, It could not be characterized as more st with stark simplicity and crystal clarity. Jonah knew what God was saying. 
What God was telling Jonah could not have been more easy or more clear to understand. It was laid bare before Jonah. Church, that is what we have today. As we sit with the entire word of God with the same privileges Jonah had, New Testament privileges, the Holy Spirit speaking to us through the word of God, we're laid bare by the crystal clarity and the simplicity of what God has called us to. Ferguson goes on. Now we know that there are things in the Bible that are just frankly are difficult to understand. The Apostle Peter even said that there are some things in Paul's letters that are frankly hard to understand. But the problem in the Christian life is almost never created by the bits of the Bible that are difficult to understand, is it? But they are created by the bits of the Bible no one could conceivably misunderstand. So as you sit here this morning with your Bible open on your lap, what clear things of God, what commands of God, what call of God on your life do you confess is clear? You understand it but in which you have not acted or are currently wanting to run from. These are no casual encounters. Yield yourself to God this morning. It's good. Well, we see the cause of the problem. There's a clear word of God. Jonah, get up, go. So what does Jonah do? What does Jonah do in response to God's word? Number two. Sadly, three things that all go down. The imagery in this chapter is amazing. They all go down. They go away from the closeness of God, away from his presence, away from his words. Number one, he's consumed with doubt and distress. Two, he disobeys God's word and seeks to disappear from God's presence. And three, he, he despairs to the point of destruction. First, Jonah doubted and distressed over God's word. Look at it again with me. You see this, to see this, you have to know more about what God told him to do. He told him clearly, get up. The get up here is an immediate, that Jonah would have understood. This isn't, by the way, at some point, would you consider booking a, a trip to Nineveh? The get up is an imperative. It's now, go. In fact, we see other prophets in the Old Testament when God says, arise, go. The next verse is, and Elijah arose and went. That's, that's what we frankly probably expect when we go to the Old Testament and we see a prophet. In this case, God is saying, go now. Leave your home, leave Israel, leave your people. And frankly, the blessing that he probably enjoyed Remember I told you he was a successful prophet, that, that what he had prophesied was actually, it came true, and it was actually good for Israel. They enjoyed it. The territory had been restored. God's asking Jonah to leave his comfort zone, to leave this place. And I think this, I, I think that's something. I, I, I think I would struggle with that. Right now, leave what you're comfortable with, Go. 
But I think there's a little bit more here. I think it goes deeper. When we think about what does Jonah do and the struggle he has and the doubt and the distress, I think it has more to do with the where. So where does God tell Jonah to go? He says, go to Nineveh, that great city. Well, where is Nineveh? Nineveh is a very large and important city at that time. Nineveh is a capital city of Assyria, which is in modern-day Iraq. It's in kind of the northern part of Iraq. And who lived there? Assyrians. And the Assyrians, what would we know about them? Well, frankly, they were the terror of much of the known world. They had strong cities. In fact, archaeologists have found what they believe to be Nineveh with the forted wall around it. And what were they known for? Strong armies and torture. They tortured and captured and expanded their, their kingdom. They were pagans. They were barbarians. And more, they were the sworn enemy of Israel. They hated the people of God. And they were the same people that God had, that there was prophecy that they would come and destroy Israel. And Jonah may have known that. God was calling Jonah to leave home now and to go a long way to a dangerous place and preach. To share a difficult word to a people that hated his very existence. Jonah didn't want to do it. I don't know that I would want to do it. But he didn't want to do it because he didn't want God to be revealed to, the, to his enemy. To the enemy of Israel. How could God, the God of Israel, have a revelation, a word specifically intended for the enemies of Israel? This distressed Jonah. This gave Jonah doubt. So... Instead of reminding himself of who God was and God's faithfulness and the goodness of his word and what he had known of God, instead of trusting the living God who was speaking directly to him in his word, he focused on that doubt. He focused on that distress. He focused on himself. Isn't that true of us? After I graduated, I, I moved to uh, Washington, D.C., Started a job three weeks uh, after I had walked across and gotten my diploma, and there I was on Capitol Hill. I knew no one. I don't recommend do picking a city that way. <laughs> it was a little lonely. And by God's grace, I found a church and quickly found a mentor in that church, a godly man who was older than me. He would just say, hey, Bob, you want to go grab lunch? And so we would grab lunch, and Andy and I would always talk. And inevitably, I'm a 22-year-old guy just trying to make sense of life, and I'm like, Andy, I don't know. I'm... You know, this is what works like, and, and I would start to just describe my struggles. And he was very patient with me when I would probably be waxing on about some drivel. But I remember he would always encourage me, and, and we would talk about problems or difficulties, and he would break it down this way. He said that in our problems or uncertainty, we're tempted often to do one of two things. That we doubt that in this circumstance that that God is in control of the situation. Or we doubt that in this circumstance that God's good to me. And most of our problems, 
Most of what we're struggling with, most of our doubt comes into that. We doubt that the circumstance that God's in control, or we doubt that he's good, we doubt that he's sovereign, or we doubt that he loves us. That in this situation, does God love me? Jonah's struggling in this call of God, and I think we see from the context of the book, he's not doubting if God's in control. If you flip over a couple pages, he's not necessarily doubting is God in control. What he's actually doubting that in going to his enemies, in going to Nineveh, is this good for me? Is what God's doing good and right? And, and is it good for me? And he's struggling in that place for himself. So, so I just ask you this morning, what circumstances in your life are causing you to doubt and distress over the promises of God's word? You see, there's no sitting still in this struggle as you consider, is God in control? And is he good? Does he love me? Is, he, is him accomplishing his sovereign purpose good in my heart? And will it draw me? There's no sitting still. Either you're drawn into the presence of the word of God, or you're retracting away from it. And that's where we find Jonah. So what does he do next in his consumption of distress and doubt? Jonah disobeys God's word and seeks to disappear from God's presence. God had clearly and simply instructed Jonah, Jonah, get up, go, go to Nineveh. I have something for you to do there. I want you to preach. But we see in verse 3, what? But Jonah. May that not be true of us. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down to it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Nineveh was north and east of Israel. But Jonah got up, went to, the, to Joppa, found a ship to go south and west. I, it's almost like I, I, um, he, he went the opposite way. He went the complete opposite way. I remember as a kid growing up in Indiana, our, our living room had a little globe on a stand next to one of the chairs, and I would play with it, and you would put your finger on one dot, then you'd work your way around the dot on the other, and say, like, what's on the other side of the earth of Indiana? Ocean. Um, but you would inevitably just start doing that. Like, if I dug a hole through here, how could I get to there? Just things kids do with a globe, right? That's in essence what Jonah did. God says, go here, this dot. He's like, I'm going here. Tarshish was... Um, on the complete opposite side. So if we think northern Iraq, Nineveh, Tarshish was likely off the coast of Spain. It was a Phoenician trade city known for smelting or melting or reshaping precious metals where the, the Phoenicians would collect them and, and, and take them and then melt them down. And it was the complete opposite side of the known earth. He goes to Spain. This is what Jonah does. He, he goes the opposite way. No, also, just, just in passing, as this going down, going down, going down, Spurgeon and others have pointed out, 
he has no trouble finding a ship going to the opposite side of the known earth right when he needs it. And as he's walking away from the known crystal clear word of God, he's trusting, this is great. I found this ship just when I need it. This is a great thing. And he jumps on it. And it's, it's a conviction for us as Spurgeon words that we should never trust our circumstances or our conveniences as blessing when we're openly disobeying God's word. Spurgeon says, precepts, not providences, are to guide believers. What we also see is disobedience is accompanied by this motivating desire to do what? I'm going down, I'm going down, I'm going down. The down is because I've got to get away from the presence of the Lord. One preacher says that Jonah probably realizes that he can't completely separate himself from the presence of the Lord. And in all honesty, as I studied this week, I'm not sure. Because sin's that blinding, isn't it? I think he wanted to get away from God, but I do appreciate what this commentator says. He says that he wanted to get away from all the reminders of God. That in Israel, had he stayed... Had he just not gone, had he stayed, he would have gone throughout his day, he'd have gone throughout his week, and he would have seen reminders of the God of Israel. He would have seen reminders of Yahweh. And he had to get away from anyone that would know this God, that he would know this word, and then maybe he wouldn't be bothered, maybe he wouldn't be tortured by the piercing reality that he's not at peace with God. You see, you cannot live in peace in the presence of God, if you're disobeying the word of God. You cannot live in peace in the presence of God if you're disobeying the word of God. So Jonah runs, and he run, runs down. Down to Joppa, down to the port, down to the boat, down to the bottom of the boat. Not just content to ride along and say goodbye as people are leaving the harbor. He goes down to the bottom of the boat, and he goes to sleep. And maybe this, in some ways, you flip over to the New Testament. Hey, I remember Christ slept in the bottom of the boat. And these stories could not be more different. Christ sleeps at the bottom of the boat during a, a storm in the peace and presence of the Lord. And he has power by his very word over all creation. Jonah is asleep to get away from the presence of the Lord. And it's already not working. He would have known, remember the psalm we, we, we heard this morning? He would have known Psalm 139 that says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise up on the wings of the dawn, or if I settle on the far side of the sea. So frankly, the last hope of Jonah is to not be conscious. He doesn't even want to be awake. He doesn't want to be aware of his senses because his senses recognize the presence of God. He wants to live in his dreams. So my question for myself and for you this morning is, you're here, praise God. Do you want to be in this place this morning? Do you want to think about things of the Lord this morning? Is this a welcomed presence for you? 
Members of First Boynton, Jonah shows us why it's good for us to covenant together to not forsake the assembly. Because being here is good for our soul. Because we need the word of God, and frankly, I can tell you even in my life at times, not wanting to be here can be an indication that I'm discouraged or that you may be struggling. It may be an indication that you're, you're really distressed or you're doubting. Or maybe that you're even disobeying to the point of even despairing. Our life can depend upon it. We need this place because we need God, God's word and we need his presence. Let's continue to look out for each other, First Boynton. Greet each other, care for each other, invest in each other. Don't forsake being together. Because we need each other in being in this place and being in God's presence. Well, finally, we see this downward spiral, don't we? Doubt, discouragement, distress, disobedience, seeking to get away from the presence of God. And it ends in Jonah despairing of his failure and accepting the destruction of his life. The interaction of Jonah with the pagan sailors reveals defeat, doesn't it? You read this passage and you see the narrative and you just, you see the image in the midst of a horrible storm of someone who's just resigned himself. Sin had taken root. And in this, it's ironic, but you see a pagan sailor wake up the prophet of God and say the very first words that God had said to Jonah, Arise! And as soon as he comes out of that sleep, he's reminded painfully of who he is and where God is. He wakes up to a crisis, to a display of God's power. Floridians, think hurricane. The human... The humility and panic of being on a small ship off the coast of Florida in a hurricane would drop any surly sea, seaman to his knees in humility. That's the fear of the sailors here. Jonah, however, is lost in failure. The sailors call Jonah to pray to God. He doesn't. They do. Jonah had given up. Next, they cast lots. They say, we are, we are dying. We are in the midst of a horrible hurricane storm. What has caused this? So they cast lots as they did in that day, and they're basically throwing dice to determine who's responsible. Why has this been brought upon us by the gods, right? And falling on Jonah, they start to pepper him as you would. They pepper him as you would if somebody ran into you that was running from the police and they ran into you, you would say things like, who are you? What have you done? Where are you going? What happened? And his answers reveal, as one commentator pointed out, that his life and his testimony had been completely divorced at this point. Jonah says, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He reveals that God is sovereign and God is all-powerful over everything. 
And what's this cause? This causes the sailors who do not know Yahweh to even have a redirected and more appropriately assigned fear of what's happening. Now the storm's not what's concerning them. It's the one who made the storm. The one who's in control of the storm. But Jonah just sits there. Alistair Begg points out that never have a group of people more needed a minister of God's word who could help them and reveal God to them as these sailors. Yet Jonah was completely useless to pray and useless to help. So much so that they cry out to God and plead for mercy, but not Jonah. In complete resignation, this true but disobedient prophet of God he does make a prophecy about himself and what he likely means will assume his imminent death. You want to stop the storm? Throw me in. You'll have to sacrifice me. Well, dear friend this morning, wherever you are, do you resonate at some point in this downward path of Jonah? Have you seen it in your own life? Small ways, big ways. Are you struggling with some truth of God's word? Something about what you know to be true? Are you even doing things that you know are sin? Continuing things that you know in your heart through God's word are wrong. Maybe you've even started to run away from the Lord, at least in your heart. You sit here this morning and you can't pray. You can't openly talk about things of God. This is not a comfortable place for you to be. Have you even reached the point of giving up? If a non-Christian this morning asked you to pray for them or to explain the meaning of life, could you utter the words of the gospel but frankly feel like a hypocrite and shallow emptiness in your own state of despair? There is hope in Jonah 1. There is hope in the main point this morning. Whether you've never known God or have believed in Christ and you've just grown dry or you've fallen into doubt or disobedience, how can there be hope? How can there be hope in Jonah who's ready to die in the ocean? Well, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the gospel can be summed up in two words, and these two words are found in this chapter. The gospel of Jesus Christ has some revelation in this chapter, and those two words are simply, but God. But God. You see, left to ourselves, me, you, we're all like Jonah. We'll run from the presence of God. We will doubt and distort his character, it's what we will do. But God. So let's spend the remainder of our time considering that. What does God do in accordance to his word? What does God do in chapter one? Well, three things quickly. Jonah calls, or God calls Jonah before, during, and after his doubt and distress. God sovereignly disrupts and exposes Jonah in his disobedience and attempt to disappear. And God mercifully captures 
and keeps Jonah when he despairs. Number one, God calls Jonah before his doubt and distress. As I said earlier, God gave Jonah a clear and simple word. Get up, go to Nineveh. This was the cause of his run, but just think about this again. God had a plan for Jonah. God had a current plan for Jonah. The same God that had revealed himself to Jonah about the expansion of the territory in Israel was coming to Jonah again with a fresh word. He was going to use Jonah. Jonah, you're my man. Jonah, I want you to get up and go. God had revealed himself to Jonah. Simply put, God would... God's pursuing of Jonah had begun before Jonah had started to run away. God wanted relationship with Jonah. God wanted to use Jonah. Even when Jonah does disobey, we see that God's plan, which includes Jonah, doesn't change. In a few weeks, we'll flip over and look at chapter 3. And we'll see that the very same word is given to Jonah again, and God has restored him. Let that encourage you this morning. God reveals himself in his character and his word. His directives made clear in our life about being a Christ follower are good for us. Whether you're a husband, a dad, a child, a church member, they're clear to us in scripture because he wants to show us himself. His plan involves us. He doesn't need us. But he graciously in his love uses us. He calls us in his word. And this brings him a particular glory to himself and a personal good for us. Wherever you are this morning, there's hope in the word of God today. Well, number two, God sovereignly disrupts and exposes Jonah in his disobedience and attempt to dis disappear. How does God in, in the Bible describe himself in pursuing? Well, Hebrews 12 tells us that in your struggle against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a, as a father addresses its son? It says, My son, do not make light of God's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. God is good to not leave Jonah alone. Unlike the pursuit of a cop, a pursuit of a police officer where you have cops and robbers, and you, you kind of, you wonder in that uncertainty, who's going to get the glory? Is the police officer going to capture him and justice be restored? Or is the robber going to get away with the gold and enjoy the bounty? God pursuing us could not be more different. He is completely in control. All heaven and earth are at his dispense. There's no doubt. There's none, and it's good for us because this is how he pursues us. He pursues us like a dad pursues a child. I know sometimes when I correct my children, immediately their head goes down, 
and, and I've caught them in something they shouldn't be doing. And frankly, you see it in them. They start to squirm and they think, I think I'm just going to run up to my bunk bed and get away. Get away. And, and, and that's, that's what we do. But I know the whole house is mine. <laughs> I know where they're going to be. I'll follow them. I'll chase them. I'll get them. I'll sit with them. And then I want their eyes to remind them that as I correct them, that why obedience is good for them. And, and that's what we have in God and how much more in God who can control the seas to disrupt the plans of Jonah. He can control the roll of the dice to expose the sin of Jonah and even command the worship of pagan sailors and the obedience of a giant fish to swallow up and harbor the disobedient minister of God's word. This completely sovereign God, king of the universe, chooses to describe his pursuit of us as a loving daddy or a caring shepherd who goes after the lost sheep. So how are you considering God's sovereign discipline in your own life this morning? And is it a recognition that he's keeping you from your own destruction? That he's calling you to repentance and obedience? That it's for your good? Well, finally, God mercifully captures and keeps Jonah in his despair. We left Jonah in, in a bad place. He was, frankly, accepting death and destruction. He was going to be an involuntary sacrifice to the storm of the sea. He was deserving of his consequences. But God, even at this point, God captures and keeps Jonah in a miraculously sized and a miraculously timed fish. God pursued Jonah to the point of death and harbored him from the consequences he deserved. This is the God of the Bible. God's disposition of mercy and grace is on display even to the disobedient. God prepared a way for Jonah to be kept and restored. We'll see... Uh, when we get to chapter 2 and Stephen Worley speaks that, that God brought Jonah to his own end and a true confession of who God is in his mercy and his grace. Sinclair Ferguson says this, he says, So then, what is my hope if I find myself at the end of spiritual declension or, or in my own running from God, if you will? My hope lies in this that he has not left me, but pursues me. He pursues me because he loves me and because he is determined to pursue me and to not let me go. Just as you remember our Lord Jesus Christ did with the Jonah of the New Testament, Simon Peter. Peter, who failed him, who denied him and cursed him, turned from his word and abandoned his presence. Christ says, Peter, I've prayed for you because I care for you and I will not let you go. God kept Jonah, God kept Peter. He will keep you if you are his, even in your despair. Friends, we're prone to wander. 
We want to run. We want to look down, think of ourselves, despair, and be discouraged, and disobey. Our greatest need this morning is the same as Jonah's. We need God's word, and we need his presence. In Christ, we have both. We have it. And salvation belongs to him alone. Let's seek him now. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we know you are holy. We know you are sovereign. We cannot stand in your presence and we cannot stand in the way of your plans. God, you are gracious and merciful and you seek the worship and redemption of sinners. God, you seek even those who struggle to know you and struggle to, that are just hard to love. You say in your word that you'll have mercy on who you will. God, thank you that you've bestowed mercy on us this morning, that those of us who know you, Lord. We pray for those who may not know this mercy. May, may they see themselves for who they are. God, each of us are evil under the eye of an all-powerful God who made the land and the sea. Oh, but God, we give you thanks for the but God, that you are gracious and compassionate. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in love. God, we can stand before you as seen as Christ because of what he's done on the cross on our behalf. May each of us long for your word and seek your presence as we cling to Christ for our good and your glory. In Christ's name, amen.